Well, I haven't yet decided whether or not to vote for Boris. There's no way I will vote for a Remainer. Theresa May was a Remainer. Her heart was never in leaving. Well, she failed. And in the end, I'm afraid... Well, you helped her fail, didn't well, you? Well, the party lost confidence in her, and so did the House of Commons. As Theresa May stands down as British Prime Minister, all eyes are on the contest to succeed her, with Boris Johnson currently leading the pack. My guest this week here in London is the Conservative MP Marc Francois from the hardline European Research Group that's been snapping endlessly around Mrs May's heels. But with the Conservative Party's ratings currently plummeting through the floor, does the party even deserve to survive? Mark Francois, welcome to Conflict Zone. Hello. Your party has scored its worst election result in its history in the European elections. Dire warnings that the party's going to collapse, can't unite, can't compromise, can't govern. It's time it collapsed, isn't it? No, uh, it's time it picked a new leader. And that's what we're going to do. <coughs> uh, Mrs May resigns as leader of the Conservative Party on Friday, and we then have a process to pick a new leader. In essence, uh, the members of parliament, there are 313 Conservative MPs at present. We vote to narrow it down to two candidates and then the party members will vote. So by the end of July, they will pick in a postal ballot one of those two candidates who will then become the prime minister. At some point, the Prime Minister will probably have to win a vote of confidence in the House of Commons, probably realistically in the autumn. Which, if it's a hardline Brexiteer, you'll lose. Well, I doubt it. There's no appetite in Parliament for a no deal, which some of the hardline Brexiteers are advocating. Well, personally, I, think, I don't think we have to have no deal. I think we can go one better. So why not sign the deal then that's already on the table? Well, the deal is dead as a dodo, and it's been turned down three times by the House of Commons. The first defeat was the biggest defeat any British government has ever suffered in the entire history of Parliament, going back hundreds of years. So the deal is never going to go through. And the reason the deal was defeated is because I've read it. It's a 585 You've page. read all 585 pages. Yes, twice. And that's my job. I'm a member of Parliament. And it is, in effect, a draft international treaty. So what deal do you think you can get? The problem with the so-called withdrawal agreement, in a nutshell, is that we didn't withdraw. We still remain because of the backstop in a customs union. We wouldn't have run our own trade policy. We couldn't have done international trade deals with America or China or Brazil. The European Court of Justice would still have power over... Just in the transition period? Uh, well... Just in the transition period? Uh, no, because the arbitration period lasts beyond that, if you look at Article 174. And uh, also... There will be a number of other areas, like the Joint Committee, which lasts beyond the transition period, which, by which two civil servants effectively could make law above the head of Parliament. So, yeah, but Mr Francois, the, the deal provides for an exit from Europe's political union and its institutions. Look, true or false? Isn't that what you wanted? No, that is not true, because it's still... So, for instance, the Joint Committee still means political control. So, look, the why deal is dead. Control? The deal is dead. And there's, no, and there's no other deal on offer. Well, so what do you do? Well, what you do is you accept that the deal is dead, and you say, can we do better than no deal? In fact, we can. So what you do is you go straight to the so-called future relationship, 
and you say, what is the desired end state at the end of all of these negotiations? And that is a comprehensive free trade agreement between the United Kingdom and the European Union so that we can trade to our mutual benefit and advantage with low or no tariffs into the foreseeable future. We were always going to have to, at some point, agree the future relationship. So my argument would be... Let's no go tariffs that would flood Britain's well, well, agricultural markets and well, let, manufacturing well, that, markets. Well, that's a matter for negotiations. But there is an existing template. It's the EU-Canadian free trade agreement which was signed in 2016. Which took how many years to negotiate? Well, that took seven years to negotiate it, but the advantage of that is, is that we've already done all the heavy lifting. So we've argued... They Who's argued done the heavy lifting? It's a very different economy from the British economy. Yes, but, economy. but what you would do... Very different. Well, but what you do is you take that as a start point, so you have a template that you know by definition the EU did accept because they signed it. And then you, so you don't start with a blank piece of paper, you start with that, and then you see whether you can modify it. So, for instance, it would be. You start from a weaker position because by the time you're doing this, you're already out of the EU. Well, yes, and I'm perfectly prepared to leave on WTO terms while those negotiations take place. But I would argue. Despite the fact that industry is warning that this is going to it's be. It's all project disaster. fear nonsense. Well, you could say, they well, say well, you're, you're project fantasy. Well, well, you the, don't know, do well, you? Well, the European elections. You don't know. The European elections in this country were overwhelmingly won by the Brexit party, whose policy was to leave, if necessary, with no deal. The people in this country overwhelmingly voted for that. So there is a mandate. But what I'm saying is... You're not saying there's a majority of people in this country who wanted no deal, because, because there's nothing to suggest that. Well, well uh, hang on, as a matter of fact, the European elections were clearly won by the party that With, a, with that. a turnout of 37%. Mr Francois, that's not a majority of the British people, is it? Well, well f forgive me, <laughs> but the majority to leave uh, in the 2016 referendum, 17.4 million British people voted to leave. That's the biggest vote we've ever had in this country on any proposition ever in our entire history as a nation. So talk, no, can, can we just talk about the leader? Because I know you're going to see Boris Johnson after this. Is this somebody you can support as Prime Minister and leader of the Well, party? I haven't yet decided whether or not to vote for Boris. That's partly what I'm going to go and talk to him about. But you would consider it? Well, I will vote for a Brexiteer. There is no way I will vote for a Remainer. Theresa May was a Remainer. Her heart was never in leaving. She always saw it as a kind of damage limitation exercise. Well, you say that. She said she was quite con concerned to deliver Brexit. She well, promised on innumerable occasions to deliver Brexit. She failed. And in the end, I'm afraid... Well, you helped her fail, didn't well, you? Well, the party lost confidence in her, and so did the House of Commons. You happy that Boris Johnson has been ordered to appear in court over claims that he lied during the referendum well, campaign uh, over this £350 million a week to the EU? Well, the person who's done that is, is an absolute ardent Remainer. And actually, if does that matter? Well, yes, of course it does. Why? It doesn't have a bearing on the merit of the case, well, it as does. the court said. Well, it does, because clearly he's doing it from a particular perspective. If the aim is to damage Boris, it will have precisely the opposite effect. Because remember, the decision on who to pick will go to our members. And if they see him being hounded in the courts by an arch remainer, they're more likely to vote for him. So, so you are you, you undermining public faith in the courts? You don't think the courts will reach the right decision? I mean, the judge was quite clear. I am satisfied there is sufficient to establish prima facie evidence of an issue to be determined at trial. Well, I would argue that the place to argue politics is in Parliament, not in a courtroom. It's arguing whether the charges are, in essence, that he deliberately misled voters. These are allegations of misconduct in public office. Well, I don't Isn't believe... that important? Well, I don't believe he did, but he will well, make... Well, the court a... will decide that, won't it? Well, but I 
it is, as I say, it's a politically motivated charge by an ardent Remainer, and what it will do is it will probably boost Boris's vote among Tory party members. That's but the courts point. are independent, we'll reach an independent decision. And in any case, the figure was absurd. It was labelled absurd by the Institute of Fiscal Studies and misleading by the UK Statistics Authority. Well, actually, but he went on using it. Well, the Conservative government has now announced a £20 billion a year cash injection into the National Health Service under what's known as the NHS 10-year plan. So that will actually more than cover the £350 million figure. So yeah. we'll actually end up spending more but Even than Nigel that. Farage, who used that figure during the referendum campaign, admitted that it simply wasn't true. Well, if it, let us see what the arguments are. You knew it wasn't true. You've been a minister. You well, knew that £350 million wasn't true. Why didn't you call it out at the time? Well, excuse me. Let's see what the court decides when they debate it. But at the end of the day... You're not uh, answering my question. Uh, well, you I, knew it was false. No. You didn't? No, it was, the gross, it was the correct gross figure. There was an argument. But it wasn't sold as a gross figure. Well, there was an argument about whether you used a gross figure or a net figure. As a gross figure, it was literally true. And I'm sure Boris will make that point in court. Boris has, uh, uh, has a history of being economical with the truth, hasn't he? He told Britons after the referendum that they would still have access to the single market. That turned out to be nonsense, didn't it? Well, I'm not here as an advocate for Boris Johnson. No, you, but you, you said you might vote for him. Well, I said I might. But I suggest you go and ask to interview Boris Johnson. As he's not here, perhaps you'd like to interview me. I mean, I'm interviewing you about what you thought. What you thought about Boris. Well, as I say, I'm going to go and talk to him after this. I'm afraid your cameras won't be present to that. The country wanted this bill that you've said is dead in the water, this withdrawal bill. No, it didn't bill. want it. Well, well what the, do you the, base that on? The opinion polls. Which opinion poll? Okay, March the 29th, YouGov poll. Those who voted leave in 2016, the outcome which you supported, these same people wanted to see that deal pass by 49% to 30%. Conservative voters asked on the same day, wanted by an even higher margin to get this deal over the line, 57% to 24%. If you didn't care what they thought, is it any wonder they don't care what you think and don't well, vote, won't vote for your party? Let me give you another YouGov poll, which was prior to that, which said that 54% of the public did not believe that the withdrawal agreement represented leaving the EU. 14%, one four, did. But they still wanted it passed, didn't they? Well, the look, 29th of March poll. Same people that voted leave wanted it passed by well, 49 to 30%. Have you read the withdrawal agreement? Why, do you need me to fill you in? Well, I've read it, so I know what's in it. Do you? I don't need to read, in other words, read the withdrawal In other words, bill. you don't, I don't know. I don't need to in other read words, the withdrawal bill. You don't know what's well, in it. Well, it doesn't matter whether I know or not, does it? Well, I do, because I've read it, and that's why I voted I'm against it. I'm talking about the polls. I'm talking about what the British public... I'm talking no, no, about people no. who voted leave and supported no, but with, you. With respect, you're trying to lecture me on an agreement that I've read, you and you haven't. I'm not lecturing you at all. Perhaps you'd like to do this, this interview again when you've read the withdrawal agreement. People were asked... Because the, you would be much better informed. People were asked a very simple question in the 2016 referendum, weren't they? Should the UK remain a member of the European Union or leave the European Union? That was the question. That was on it? the ballot paper. They didn't vote for a proper Brexit or an ERG Brexit or a no-deal Brexit. In fact, on that particular issue, vote leave was pretty clear there wouldn't be a no-deal outcome, wasn't it? Well, as I was trying to argue earlier, I think that the best outcome is not a no-deal outcome. It's a free trade agreement outcome. 
But why is it that you, particularly in the ERG, in this part of the Conservative Party, have set yourself up as the arbiters of what Brexit really means? Because the withdrawal agreement doesn't achieve Brexit, and therefore we want something that does. We want to leave the European Union, we want to be a sovereign nation, we want to elect our own government and make our own laws. And at the end of the day, as someone who campaigned a lot in the referendum, that was the critical issue. There were a number of issues at play. The money was an issue, immigration was an issue, but the overriding issue was sovereignty. It was about who governs, who makes our laws, who governs our way of life. And the British people voted by a majority of well over a million votes that we wanted to take back control of our own destiny and our own government. That's really what Brexit means. On the 31st of October, that is precisely what we're going to do. Let's talk a bit about the nature of the political discourse in Britain at the moment. What happened to compromise in British politics? And I ask this because this issue has helped to turn Britain into a pretty angry and divided country, hasn't it? And you and your colleagues often seem to revel in that. Why? Well, I, I wouldn't use the word revel, but the truth is, is that the British establishment, and I mean I included that some powerful officials in number 10 Downing Street and in the Cabinet Office, I include a number of many members of Parliament, I include some in the media, though not yourself, sir, uh, who have never accepted the result of the referendum, who thought that people were wrong, and who spent three years doing their best to frustrate their decision. So it's a conspiracy, it's them and us. It's, it's the people versus the establishment, as, you wrote, as you wrote in the That article. is exactly what it is, and on, in the European elections, the people won. And your expression of fellow travellers, which you also put in your article, suggests a whiff of Cold War treachery. Why the apocalyptic language that you and your colleagues are using? Bill Cash, one of your senior members, accused Theresa May of appeasement, a forced and humiliating surrender. Former Foreign Office Minister Alistair Burke criticised the use of words like mendacity, surrender, betrayal. Does it ever cross your mind, he said to Bill Cash, what you're contributing to? And the answer is a toxic, febrile environment. Well, the Sun newspaper and the Telegraph newspaper analysed the withdrawal agreement when it was published. They both, their words, not mine, described it as a surrender. So you might want to take it up with the editor of the Sun or the editor of the Daily Telegraph. Yeah, but you don't need to parrot what the Sun says or the Daily Telegraph says. No, but my point is, is that they were using that language. Yeah. They're national newspapers. Yeah. So do you, do you set your compass by what the national newspapers do? On the contrary, you said there are people in the press you don't want to follow who are part of this conspiracy. Well, I've read the withdrawal agreement, and it is a surrender document. That's why I would never vote for it. Isn't the country divided enough without people pouring more oil on the fire, painting them and us scenarios like you do, talking of conspiracies, when... The other side, the people who oppose your view, just think differently. That's it. They think differently. They're allowed to think differently in a democracy, aren't they? Of course they are. But equally, it's important to remember that before the referendum, the government spent £9 million of British taxpayers' money sending a leaflet through every door in the United Kingdom to try and persuade us to remain. Now, in that leaflet, in the last page, it says very clearly, this is a once-in-a-generation decision. And it then said, and I can remember the words literally, it says, this is your decision. The government will implement what you decide. Well, the people decided, decided 
but the government didn't implement it. Hence the division and the frustration in our country. If the government had done what the people, having given them the choice, having promised them that they would implement their decision, when the people decided, many people in government didn't like, thought it was the wrong answer. If they had implemented the decisions they promised in the booklets, they promised every elector in the United Kingdom, we wouldn't be in this. Who was it who said, if a democracy can't change its mind, it's not a democracy? Do you remember who said that? Churchill. No, it was uh, David Davis more recently, oh, in, so I, in, well, in, in 2012. He said it in a speech. Well, I thought Churchill I, once said something along those lines, but anyway. I, anyway, this would have been more recent, 2012. Undoubtedly. That's a promise that people can change their minds. Why can't they change their minds over Brexit? Well, you change your mind over the whole time over what leader you've got. Well, I haven't. Over changed what my, government? With respect, sir, I haven't changed my mind over Brexit. You, the Conservatives. Well, look, the people voted. They took a decision, and they it, can change their mind. Can't well, they? we've taken a decision. In Parliament, we spent forty years in the House of Commons arguing about Europe, almost really from the day that we joined the European Economic Community in 1973. In the end, we agreed on one thing, which is that we couldn't agree. So we all agreed, or nearly everybody, overwhelmingly, the House of Commons voted to put the decision to the British people in a referendum. I think from memory, over 500 MPs voted for that, or thereabouts. So the House of Commons overwhelmingly said, let's put it to the people, and everybody promised faithfully to abide by the result. Now, you could argue a cynic might have thought that's because both sides thought they were going to win. But anyway, everybody promised, and the decision was to leave. And yet, many people in the House of Commons never accepted it, felt it was the wrong answer, felt the people had made a dreadful mistake, and have spent the last three years digging their heels in, doing everything they can to frustrate the will of the people. This, as I said, as you quoted me, this has morphed from Lee versus Remain to the people versus the establishment. And in the end, in a democracy, the people must prevail. Mr. Francois, you took issue when I said you were reveling in the divisions in the country, but you like to pick out targets to have a go at, don't you? When the German boss of Airbus, Tom Enders, said Brexiteers were mad to say his company would never leave the UK because Airbus has huge factories there, you let him have it with both barrels, didn't you? Accused him of Teutonic arrogance and then started talking about your father, a D-Day veteran, who never submitted to bullying by any German, nor would his son, you said. What on earth has Mr Enders got to do with the war and your father on D-Day? Well, Mr Enders has now been replaced at Airbus by Guillaume Foley, who said at a press conference, I think two weeks ago, that Airbus, whatever happened on Brexit, will now remain in the United Kingdom and were committed to the United so Kingdom. So he has a different view? Yes. But, but at the time you said it, what did Mr Enders have to do with well, your well, father and D-Day? Well, Mr Enders, by, his, by threatening to withdraw 14,000 jobs from the United Kingdom, was effectively trying to bully British members of Parliament and how to vote in the House of Commons. He wasn't bullying, he was pointing out that if you took certain political decisions in this country, there would be consequences for his company. Well, those consequences appear to have changed because the new chief executive of Airbus, who is, should we say, not as aggressive as Mr Enders in his character, has now assured us that Airbus are here for the long term. What was, so, what so, was aggressive about him taking seriously his responsibility for the thousands of workers um, Airbus employees in the UK. Well, he was threatening to take away their jobs. That's how seriously he took his responsibility. He was warning them that his, the jobs were in danger. He wasn't threatening to take them well, away. He was warning the jobs were in danger. Well, it would appear the new CEO says they're not. You think people will say, 
Mr. Mr. Francois was tough here. He stuck it to the Germans. Is it, what did you want to come out of this extraordinary exchange which you provoked? I don't think any, any company, be they British or European or American or Brazilian or Chinese, be they Huawei or anybody else, should attempt to bully the House of Commons. Well, Donald Trump attempts to bully... Now, he's not a company, is he? You, you said any, any political leader? No, I said any company. Ah, but you're meek as a lamb where Donald Trump is concerned. Please, if he you... Comes in, I, I don't, he comes in, he comes in and says whatever he look, wants, Look, I, I, don't mean, I don't mean to uh, challenge your skill as an interviewer, but if you are going to quote me, quote me properly. About what? I didn't say that about Donald Trump because he's not a company. Okay, so um, why are you so silent when he comes in? He, he insults the Mayor of London, the Duchess of Sussex, he tells the government what to do, he endorses uh, Boris Johnson as leader, and you're quite happy about that, to be bullied by America? Well, you're silent about that. Well, wait one second, I thought we were talking about Brexit. We are. Right. We're, talking, we're talking about divisions as well. We're talking about your attitude to people telling Britain, as you said, or trying to bully Britain. That's what we were talking about a moment ago. Well, so I thought we were talking about a company that had attempted to bully the House of Commons. Yeah, moment. and now we're talking about uh, the leader attempting to bully the House of Commons. Well, okay, Donald Trump is not a company. He's an elected politician. I understand that. Now, he is the President of the United States. Now, some people don't like him but he was democratically elected by the American people. He holds that office because he won a presidential election in the United States. Now, he's not everybody's cup of tea. He's extremely plain speaking. Some people don't like that. I'm a plain speaking politician, so I, I'm not frightened of that. But he has engaged in a direct flagrant attempt to influence British politics. Well, for instance... You wouldn't accept this from any European leaders, would well, you? Well, for instance, he has been involved in a debate about whether or not we should allow the Chinese company Huawei access to our telecommunications network when we grow a 5G network in this country. Personally, I think he's right that the National Security Council, as we now know, were divided on the issue. Some secretaries of state thought that it was acceptable and we could manage the risk. Other secretaries of state thought that we couldn't manage the risk and it was far too dangerous. But personally. he's threatening Britain that if it doesn't make the right decision over Huawei, they'll reduce intelligence cooperation. That's bullying, isn't it? Well, You're quite happy about that. Well, wait one second. I think what he said, and again, maybe you might want to interview him about it, but I think he's cautioning us against what he believes is not a wise course of action because the intelligence sharing between the so-called Five Eyes community, ourselves, the United States, Australia, Canada and New Zealand is fundamental to the national security of all five of us and indeed to the West. But my point is you accept the kind of bullying from Donald Trump that you wouldn't accept from any European leaders, would you? Well, the President of the United States has a view and he's come over here and he tends to it's express more than a view, views. he tells what he wants. Well, on Huawei, I think he's right. So as long as he's right, you're happy to accept bullying well, from abroad? I don't think him commenting on Huawei is bullying. Let's talk about Jeremy Corbyn. You've got three minutes to talk about whatever you Let's want. Let's talk about Jeremy Corbyn. In April, you called him a Marxist with anti-Semitic tendencies. Yes. If he is a Marxist, so what? He happens to be an elected leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition here. Why does that rule him out as an interlocutor for your party? Because you complained that um, Theresa May shouldn't have sat down and spoken. Jeremy Corbyn is not just a Marxist. He has presided over a culture of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party, which is now being investigated by the Human Rights Commission, not by me. 
Well, your party's been accused of Islamophobia. Well, wait one second. He is a Republican, has been all his life, doesn't hide it, doesn't like the monarchy. He also uh, is a lifelong member of the campaign for nuclear disarmament. He has always passionately believed in reducing our nuclear, in fact, abolishing our nuclear defences. He's been in elected a in a free and fair election yeah. I accept in a democracy. That, I accept that he is the leader of the Labour Party, but he is antithetical to everything my party believes. Why should we get into bed with a man who represents everything we detest? So what you've said in effect is that Jeremy Corbyn's political beliefs, whatever they may be, have put him beyond the pale and ruled him out as a political interlocutor. That's a dangerous idea in a democracy, isn't it? No, You'll I... only talk to the people whose views you like or well, accord with no, your own. With respect, we talk to other politicians all the time in the House of Commons. But you're Parliament. drawing a line with him. You won't I sit down and talk I to him. I wouldn't do a deal over the future of this country with that man, no. Never mind the fact that he is freely and fairly elected. They've chosen him to be their leader. Doesn't mean I have to agree with him. I think he'd be a disastrous Prime Minister and I hope and believe he will never be the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. But your efforts, the efforts of the Conservative Party may well put him in the top slot by the end well, of this year. I, How will you think then of what you've done? Well, I don't believe Jeremy Corbyn will win a general election because I don't believe the British people want to vote for a Marxist with anti-Semitic leaders. You're not necessarily the best clairvoyant, are you? Well, if it's an election, the really important thing about that is you won't decide, and neither will I. The people will. It's called democracy. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much indeed.